Among the most memorable parables the Savior ever told is the story of a foolish younger brother who went to his father, asked for his portion of the estate, and left home to squander his inheritance, the scripture says, in riotous living. His money and his friends disappeared sooner than he thought possible. They always do. And a day of terrible reckoning came thereafter. It always does. In the downward course of all this, he became a keeper of pigs, one so hungry, so stripped of sustenance and dignity, that he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. But even that consolation was not available to him. Then the scripture says encouragingly, he came to himself. He determined to find his way home, hoping to be accepted at least as a servant in his father's household. The tender image of this boy's anxious, faithful father running to meet him and showering him with kisses is one of the most moving and compassionate scenes in all of Holy Writ. It tells every child of God, wayward or otherwise, how much God wants us back in the protection of His arms. But being caught up in this younger son's story, we can miss, if we are not careful, the account of an elder son. For the opening line of the Savior's account reads, A certain man had two sons, and he might have added, both of whom were lost and both of whom needed to come home. The younger son has returned. A robe has been placed on his shoulders and a ring on his finger when the older son comes on the scene. He has been dutifully, loyally working in the field, and now he is returning. The language of parallel journeys home, though from very different locations, is central to this story. As he approaches the house, he hears the sound of music and laughter. And he called one of the servants, note that he has servants, and asked what these things meant. And the servant said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And the older brother was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. Well, you know the conversation they then had. Surely for this father, the pain over a wayward child who had run from home and wallowed with swine is now compounded with the realization that this older, wiser brother, the younger boy's childhood hero, as older brothers always are, is angry that his brother has come home. No, actually, I correct myself. This son is not so much angry that the other has come home as he is angry that his parents are so happy about it, feeling unappreciated and perhaps more than a little self-pity. This dutiful son, and he is wonderfully dutiful, forgets for a moment that he has never had to know filth or despair fear or self-loathing. He forgets for a moment that every calf on the ranch is already his, and so are all the robes in the closet and every ring in the drawer. He forgets for a moment 
that his faithfulness has and always will be rewarded. No, he who has virtually everything and who has in his hardworking, wonderful way earned it lacks the one thing that might make him the complete man of the Lord he nearly is. He has yet to come to the compassion and mercy, the charitable breadth of vision, to see that this is not a rival returning. It is his brother. As his father pled with him to see, it is one who was dead and now is alive. It is one who was lost and now is found. Certainly this younger brother had been a prisoner, a prisoner of sin, stupidity, and a pigsty. But the older brother lives in some confinement too. He has as yet been unable to break out of the prison of himself. He is haunted by the green-eyed monster of jealousy. He feels taken for granted by his father and disenfranchised by his brother when neither is the case. He has fallen victim to a fictional affront. As such, he is like Tantalus of Greek mythology. He is up to his chin in water, but he remains thirsty nevertheless. One who has heretofore presumably been very happy with his life and content with his good fortune suddenly feels very unhappy simply because another has had some good fortune as well. Who is it that whispers so subtly in our ear that a gift given to another somehow diminishes the blessings we have received? Who makes us feel that if God is smiling on another, then he surely must somehow be frowning on us? You and I both know who does this. It is the father of all lies. It is Lucifer, our common enemy, whose cry down through the corridors of time is always and to everyone, Give me thine honor. It has been said that envy is the one sin to which no one readily confesses. But just how widespread that tendency can be is suggested in the old Danish proverb, if envy were a fever, all the world would be ill. The parson in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales laments it because it is so far-reaching. It can resent anything, including any virtue and talent. And it can be offended by everything, including every goodness and joy. As others seem to grow larger in our sight, we think we must therefore be smaller. So, unfortunately, we occasionally act that way. How does this happen, especially when we wish so much that it would not? I think one, re one of the reasons is that Every day we see allurements of one kind or another that tell us what we have is not enough. Someone or something is forever telling us we need to be more handsome or more wealthy, more applauded or more admired than we see ourselves as being. 
We are told we haven't collected enough possessions nor gone to enough fun places. We are bombarded with the message that on the world scale of things we have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Some days it is as if we have been locked in a cubicle of a great and spacious building where the only thing on the TV is a never-ending soap opera entitled Vain Imaginations. But God does not work this way. The father in this story does not tantalize his children. He does not mercilessly measure them against his neighbor. He doesn't even compare them with each other. His gestures of compassion toward one do not require a withdrawal nor denial of love for the other. He is divinely generous to both of these sons. Toward both of these children, he extends charity. I believe God is with us the way my precious wife Pat is with my singing. She, she is a gifted musician, something of a musical genius. But I couldn't capture a musical note with Velcro. <laughs> and yet I know that she loves me in a very special way when I try to sing. I know that because I can see it in her eyes. They are the eyes of love. One observer has written, In a world that constantly compares people, ranking them as more or less intelligent, more or less attractive, more or less successful, it is not easy to really believe in a divine love that does not do the same. When I hear someone praised, he says, it's hard not to think of myself as less praiseworthy. When I read about the goodness and kindness of other people, it's hard not to wonder whether I myself am as good and as kind as they. And when I see trophies, rewards, and prizes being handed out to special people, I cannot avoid asking myself why that didn't happen to me. If left unresisted, we can see how this inclination, so embellished by the world, will ultimately bring a resentful, demeaning view of God and a terribly destructive view of ourselves. Most thou shalt not commandments are meant to keep us from hurting others, but I am convinced the commandment not to covet is meant to keep us from hurting ourselves. How can we overcome such a tendency so common in almost everyone? For one thing, we can do as these two sons did and start making our way back to the Father. We should do so with as much haste and humility as we can summon. Along the way, we can count our many blessings, and we can applaud the accomplishments of others. Best of all, we can serve others, the finest exercise for the heart ever prescribed. But finally, these will not be enough. When we are lost, we can come to ourselves, but we may not always be able to find ourselves. And worlds without end, we cannot save ourselves. Only the Father and His only begotten Son can do that. 
Salvation is in them only. So we pray that they will help us, that they will come out to meet and embrace us and bring us into the feast they have prepared. They will do this. The scriptures are replete with the promise that God's grace is sufficient. This is the one arena where no one has to claw or compete. Nephi declares that the Lord loveth the whole world and has given salvation freely. Hath he commanded any that they should not partake of his goodness, he asks? No. All are privileged, the one like unto the other, and none are forbidden at his hand. Come unto me, all ye ends of the earth, he pleads, and buy milk without money and honey without price. All are privileged, the one like unto the other. Walk peacefully. Walk confidently. Walk without fear and without envy. Be reassured of Heavenly Father's abundance to you always. As we do this, we can help others, calling down blessings on them, even as they make supplication for us. We can cheer every talent and ability wherever it is bestowed, thus making life more nearly here what it will be like in heaven. It will help us to always remember Paul's succinct prioritizing of virtues. Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. He reminds us we are all of the body of Christ and that all members, whether comely or feeble, are adored, essential, and important. We feel the depth of his plea that there be no schism in the body, but that the members will have the same care one for another. And when one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or when one member is honored, all the members rejoice. That incomparable counsel helps us remember that the word generosity has the same derivation as the word genealogy, both coming from the Latin genus, meaning of the same birth or kind, the same family or gender. We will always find it easier to be generous when we remember that this person being favored is truly one of our own. Brothers and sisters, I testify that no one of us is less treasured or cherished of God than another. I testify that He loves each of us, insecurities, anxieties, self-image, and all. He doesn't measure our talents or our looks. He doesn't measure our professions or our possessions. He cheers on every runner, calling out that the race is against sin, not against each other. I know that if we will be faithful, there is a perfectly tailored robe of righteousness ready and waiting for everyone. Robes made white in the blood of the Lamb. 
May we encourage each other in our effort to win that prize is my earnest prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We express appreciation to the choir for their beautiful music. Following my remarks, they will conclude with singing Let Zion in Her Beauty Rise. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Gary J. Coleman of the Seventy. It now becomes my privilege to speak to you. From where we speak, it is a beautiful April Sabbath morning. The tulips are well out of the ground and will soon be bursting into flowering beauty. In the winter of our doubt, there came the hope of spring. We knew it would come. Such was our faith, based on the experiences of earlier years. And so it is with matters of the spirit and soul. As each man or woman walks the way of life, there come dark seasons of doubt, of discouragement, of disillusionment. In such circumstances, a few see ahead by the light of faith, but many stumble along in the darkness and even become lost. My call to you this morning is a call of faith. That faith which is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, as Paul described it. In the process of conversion, the investigator of the Church hears a little. He may read a little. He does not. He cannot comprehend the wonder of it all. But if he is earnest in his search, if he is willing to get on his knees and pray about it, the Spirit touches his heart, perhaps ever so lightly. It points him in the right direction. He sees a little of what he has never seen before. And with faith, whether it be recognized or not, he takes a few guarded steps. Then another brighter vista opens before him. Long ago, I worked for one of our railroads whose tracks threaded the passes through these western mountains. I frequently rode the trains. It was in the days when there were steam locomotives. Those great monsters of the rails were huge and fast and dangerous. I often wondered how the engineer dared the long journey through the night. Then I came to realize that it was not long, long one long journey, but rather a constant continuation of a short journey. The engine had a powerful headlight that made bright the way for a distance of four or five hundred yards. The engineer saw only that distance, and that was enough, because it was constantly before him all through the night into the dawn of the new day. The Lord has spoken of this process. He said, that which doth not edify is not of God and is darkness. That which is of God is light. And he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light. And that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. And so it is with our eternal journey. 
We take one step at a time. In doing so, we reach toward the unknown. But faith lights the way. If we will cultivate that faith, we shall never walk in darkness. Let me tell you of a man I know. <clears throat> I will not mention his name lest he feel embarrassed. His wife felt there was something missing in their lives. She spoke with a relative one day who was a member of the Church. The relative suggested that she call the missionaries. She did so, but the husband was rude to them and told them not to come again. Months passed. One day another missionary, finding the record of this visit, decided that he and his companion would try again. He was a tall elder from California who carried a big smile on his face. They knocked on the door, and the man answered. Could they come in for a few minutes, they asked. He consented. The missionary said, in effect, I wonder if you know how to pray. The man answered that he knew the Lord's Prayer. The missionary said, That's good, but let me tell you how to give a personal prayer. He went on to explain that we get on our knees in an attitude of humility before the God of heaven. The man did so. The missionary then went on to say, We address God as our Father in heaven. We then thank Him for His blessings such as our health, our friends, our food. We then asked for His blessings. We expressed our innermost hopes and desires. We asked Him to bless those in need. We do it all in the name of His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, concluding with Amen. It was a pleasant experience for the man. He had gleaned a little light and understanding, a touch of faith. He was ready to try another step. Line upon line, the missionaries patiently taught him. He responded as his faith grew into a dim light of understanding. Friends from his branch gathered around to reassure him and answer his questions. The men played tennis with him and he and his family were invited to their homes for dinner. He was baptized, and that was a giant step of faith. The branch president asked him to be a scoutmaster to four boys. That led to other responsibilities, and the light of faith strengthened in his life with each new opportunity and experience. That has continued today he stands as a capable and loved State President, a leader of great wisdom and understanding, and above all, a man of great faith. The challenge which faces every member of this Church is to take the next step to accept that responsibility to which he is called, even though he does not feel equal to it and to do so in faith with the full expectation that the Lord will light the way before him. Let me give you a story of a woman in Sao Paulo, Brazil. She worked while going to school to provide for her family. I use her own words in telling this story. She says, 
The university in which I studied had a regulation that prohibited the students that were in debt from taking tests. For this reason, when I received my salary, I would first separate the money for tithing and offerings, and the remainder was allotted for the payment of the school and other expenses. I remember a time when I faced serious financial difficulties. It was a Thursday when I received my salary. When I figured the monthly budget, I noticed that there wouldn't be enough to pay both my tithing and my university. I would have to choose between one of them. The bi-monthly tests would start the following week, and if I didn't take them, I could lose the school year. I felt great agony. My heart ached. I had a painful decision before me, and I didn't know what to decide. I pondered between the two choices, to pay tithing or to risk the possibility of not obtaining the necessary credits to be approved in school. This feeling consumed my soul and remained with me up to Saturday. It was then that I remembered that when I was baptized, I had agreed to live the law of tithing. I had taken upon myself an obligation, not with the missionaries, but with my Heavenly Father. At that moment, the anguish started to disappear, giving place to a pleasant sensation of tranquility and determination. That night when I prayed, I asked the Lord to forgive me for my indecision. On Sunday, before the beginning of sacrament meeting, I contacted the bishop, and with great pleasure I paid my tithing and offerings. That was a special day. I felt happy and peaceful within myself and with Heavenly Father. The next day I was in my office. I tried to find a way to be able to take the tests that would begin on Wednesday. The more I thought, the further I felt from a solution. At that time I worked in an attorney's office, and my employer was the most strict and austere person I had ever met. The working period was ending when my employer approached and gave the last orders of the day. When he had done so, with his briefcase in his hand, he bid farewell. Suddenly he halted, and looking at me, he asked, How's your college? I was surprised, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. The only thing I could answer with a trembling voice was, Everything's all right. I looked, he looked thoughtful at me and bid farewell again. Suddenly the secretary entered the room, saying that I was a very fortunate person. When I asked her why, she simply answered, The employer has just said that from today on the company is going to pay fully for your college and your books. Before you leave, stop at my desk and inform me of the cost so that tomorrow I can give you the check. After she left, crying and feeling very humble, I knelt exactly where I was and thanked the Lord for His generosity. I said to Heavenly Father, 
that he didn't have to bless me so much. I only needed the cost of one month's installment, and the tithing I had paid on Sunday was very small compared to the amount I was receiving. During that prayer, the words recorded in Malachi came to my mind. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Up to that moment, I had never felt the magnitude of the promise contained in that scripture and that this commandment was truly a witness of the love that God our Heavenly Father give to His children here on earth. Faith is the very fiber that gives strength to this work. Wherever this Church is established, across this broad world, it is evident. It is not limited to one country or one nation or one language or one people. It is found everywhere. We are a people of faith. We walk by faith. We move forward on our eternal journey, one step at a time. Great is the promise of the Lord to the faithful everywhere. He has said, I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. Great shall be their reward, and eternal shall be their glory. And to them will I reveal all mysteries, yea, all the hidden mysteries of my kingdom, from days of old and for days, ages to come. Yea, even the wonders of eternity shall they know, and their wisdom shall be great, and their understanding reach to heaven and before them the wisdom of the wise shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent shall come to naught. For by my Spirit will I enlighten them, and by my power will I make known unto them the secrets of my will, yea, even those things which eye has not seen nor ear heard nor yet entered into the heart of man. How could anyone ask for more? How glorious is this work in which we are engaged? How wondrous are the ways of the Almighty when we walk in faith before Him! The faith of an investigator is like a piece of green wood thrown on a blazing fire. Warmed by the flames, it dries and begins to burn. But if it is pulled away, it cannot sustain itself. Its flickering flame dies. But if left with the fire, it gradually begins to burn with brightness. Soon it is part of the flaming fire and will light other greener wood. So, my brothers and sisters, this great work of faith 
lifting people across this broad earth to increased understanding of the ways of the Lord and greater happiness in following His pattern. May God, our Eternal Father, continue to smile upon this His kingdom and cause it to prosper as we, His children, walk in faith, is my humble prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Isaiah, a great prophet of the Old Testament, prophesied, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and all the nations shall flow unto it, referring to the citizens of those nations. President John Taylor said, They will come saying, We do not know anything of the principles of your religion, but we perceive that you are an honest community. You administer justice and righteousness. This is the same counsel we received from President Hinckley. As Salt Lake City has hosted the 2002 Winter Olympic and Paralympic Games, we have seen a partial fulfillment of many of the prophecies the nations of the earth and many of the leaders have come. They have seen us serving alongside our friends in this community and our neighbors of other faiths. They have seen the light in our eyes and felt the clasp of our hands. The mountain of the house of the Lord, with its brightly lit spires, has been witnessed by three and a half billion people around the world. The nations have heard the glorious sound of this tabernacle choir. Hundreds of thousands have attended a live production in this auditorium entitled Light of the World, Spirit of Man, Glory of God, which included a declaration of our belief in Jesus Christ. I humbly express gratitude that by these and many other means the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints continues to be brought forth out of obscurity and out of darkness. Throughout the Olympics, there has been many expressions of light, such as the Olympic flame, the child of light, and the theme, light, the fire within. Perhaps the most memorable light was found in the eyes of the competitors themselves, but what moved us most was not the competition or the spectacle. It was the deeper truth these things symbolized, the source of the light within us. This morning, I speak to those who ask, What was that light I saw and felt? Where did it come from? How can I have it for myself and my loved ones, always? Each of us brings a light to the earth, the light of Christ. I am the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world, the Savior said. The light which is in all things, which giveth light to all things. This light, which inviteth and enticeth to do good continually, is given to every man that he may know good from evil. By using the light of Christ to discern and choose what is right, we can be led to an even greater light, the gift of the Holy Ghost. I testify 
that through the restoration of the gospel, the holy priesthood of God, disciples of Jesus Christ in these latter days have the power to give the gift of the Holy Ghost. It is bestowed by the laying on of hands by those who have the authority of the priesthood, and it is received by those who have followed the principles of faith and repentance and have received the ordinance of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. The Holy Ghost is the third member of the Godhead, a personage of the Spirit. He is the Comforter, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of promise. He testifies of Jesus Christ, His work and the work of His servants upon the earth. He acts, he acts as a cleansing agent to purify and sanctify us from sin. He comforts us and brings the peace to our soul the right to be our constant companion is among the greatest gifts we can receive in mortality for the light of His promptings and His cleansing power. We can be led back into the presence of God. As children, we learned how to keep darkness away, turning on light. Sometimes when our parents went away from the evening, we'd turn every light on in the house. We understood the physical law that is also a spiritual law. Light and darkness cannot occupy the same space at the same time. Light dispels darkness. When light is present, darkness is vanquished and must depart. More importantly, darkness cannot conquer light unless the light is diminished or departs. When the spiritual light of the Holy Ghost is present, the darkness of the Satan must depart. Beloved young men and women of the Church, we are engaged in a battle between the forces of light and darkness. If it were not for the light of Jesus Christ and His gospel, we would be tuned to the destruction of darkness. But the Savior said, I come as a light into the world. He that follow me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Lord is our light and literally our salvation. Like the sacred fire that encircled the children in third Nephi, His light will form a protective shield between you and the darkness of the adversary as you live worthy of it. You need that light. We need that light. Carefully study the scriptures and for the strength of youth, and listen to the teachings of your parents and leaders. Then, by obedience to wise counsel, learn to claim the protective light of the gospel as your very own. You may wonder, how can I do that? There is only one way. You must learn to generate that light each day by believing on Jesus Christ and following His commandments. This past winter, I had the opportunity to learn more about my lungs. I became very aware that you cannot store oxygen. We cannot save the air we need to breathe, no matter how hard we try, moment by moment, breath by breath. Our lives are granted to us and are renewed. So it is with spiritual light. It must be renewed in us on a regular basis. We must generate it day by day thought by thought, and with daily righteous action if we are to keep the darkness of the adversary away. 
When I was a boy, I used to ride my bicycle home from basketball practice at night. I'd connect a small pear-shaped generator to my bicycle tire. Then as I pedaled, the tire would turn a tiny rotor, which produced electricity and emitted a single welcome beam of light. It was simple but effective, a very important mechanism. But I had to pedal to make it work. I learned quickly that if I stopped pedaling my bicycle, the light would go out. I also learned that when I was anxiously engaged in pedaling, the light would become brighter and the darkness in front of me would be dispelled. The generation of spiritual light comes from daily spiritual pedaling. It comes from praying, studying the scriptures, fasting, and serving. From the living gospel and obeying the commandments, He that keepeth his commandments receiveth truth and light, said the Lord, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. My brothers and sisters, that perfect day will be when we have the light that we can stand and be in the presence of God the Father and Jesus Christ. Sometimes people ask, Why do I have to go to sacrament meeting? Or why do I have to live the word of wisdom and pay tithing? Why can't I have one foot in Babylon? May I tell you why? Because spiritual peddling takes both feet. Unless you are fully engaged in living the gospel, living it with all of your heart, might, mind, and strength, you cannot generate enough spiritual light to push back the darkness. And in this world, the darkness is never far away. In fact, it always is just around the corner, waiting for an opportunity to come in. If thou doest well, the Lord said, sin lieth at the door. At the door. It is predictable as any physical law. If we let the light of the Spirit flicker or fade by failing to keep the commandments, or by not partaking of the sacrament, or praying, or studying the scriptures, the darkness of the adversary will surely come in. That wicked, wind co- that wicked wind cometh and taketh away light and truth through disobedience. In the scriptures, we read that some individuals grope in the darkness without light and stagger like a drunken man. Stumbling along, we may become accustomed to the dimness of our surroundings and forget how glorious it is to walk in the light. There is a way out of the mist of darkness and onto the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life in the world to come. The Lord told Isaiah, I will bring the blind by a way that they know not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them. The prophet Nephi outlined the path. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I know that if you shall follow the Son with full purpose of heart, acting in no hypocrisy, and no deception before God, but with full intent, repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father that you are willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism. Behold, then shall ye receive the Holy Ghost. Yea, then cometh the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. The covenant we make at baptism and renew as we partake of the sacrament to take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. Always remember him 
and keep His commandments includes the promise that we will always have His Spirit, that we will always have that light to be with us. The emblems of the Savior's Atonement remind us that we need not stumble in darkness. We can have His light with us always. Growing up on Long Island in New York, I understood how vital light was to those who traveled in the darkness on the open sea. How dangerous is a fallen lighthouse? How devastating a lighthouse that has failed? We do have the gift of the Holy Ghost, must be true to its promptings so we can be a light to others. Let your light so shine before men, said the Lord, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We never know who may be depending on us, and as the Savior said, we know not but what they will return and repent and come unto me with full purpose of heart, and I shall heal them. Ye shall be the means of bringing salvation unto them. Now, my brothers and sisters, this last great conflict between light and darkness, I am grateful for the opportunity to endure hardness as a disciple of Jesus. With Paul I declare, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. I bear my special witness that Jesus Christ is the light, the life of the world, yea, the light that is endless that can never be darkened. He is the light of Bethlehem, born of Mary, his mortal mother, and his Father, Almighty God. He is the light who was baptized by immersion by John the Baptist, upon whom the Holy Ghost was manifest in the Spirit like a dove descending. He is the light in whom His Father was well pleased. He is the light at the head of the ancient Church, organized with twelve apostles, prophets, and seventies. He is the light of the Atonement, fulfilled in the Garden of Gethsemane and on Golgotha, who took upon Himself the sins of the world, that all mankind may obtain eternal salvation. He is the light of the empty tomb, the resurrected Lord with a glorified body of flesh and bone, who broke the bands of death and gained an everlasting victory over the grave. He is the light that ascended into heaven before the eyes of His disciples, with a promise that in this like manner He would come again, and He will come again. He is the light that appeared with His Father and restored through the Prophet Joseph Smith the same Church He established during His ministry on earth. He is the light that leads and guides this Church today through revelation to a prophet, His counselors, and the Twelve Apostles. He is the light. He is my light, my Redeemer, my Savior, and yours. I know that God lives. I know that He hath called out the darkness, and we have been called out of the darkness into His marvelous light. I pray that the light that He restored, the gospel, will continue to spread throughout the world so that all may have the opportunity to hear and choose, and that His Church will come forth out of the wilderness 
of darkness and shine forth as the moon, clear as the sun, so that his glory may fill the earth. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. When I was a young mother, my husband and I found ourselves taking our five children under the age of eight to live in South America. Although none of us spoke the language, my six-year-old had the greatest difficulty learning a new language. We decided to put her in preschool with four-year-olds, even though she should be starting first grade. Our hope was that interaction with younger children would be less intimidating to her and might facilitate her ability to communicate in Portuguese. But the reality for my daughter was that she was as foreign to the children as they were to her. Each day was a struggle, and I anguished for her every morning as I walked her to school and then waited for her to return, dejected, at the end of the day. One day, some children were particularly unkind to her. A few even threw rocks and bullied her, laughing rudely at recess. She was scared and hurt and decided she couldn't go back into class. Sitting alone while the playground emptied, she remembered what we had taught her about loneliness. She remembered that Heavenly Father is always close to His children, and she could speak to Him at any time, not just before bedtime. He would understand the language of her heart. In a corner of the playground, she bowed her head and said a prayer. She didn't know what to pray for, so she asked that her father and mother could be with her to protect her. While returning to the classroom, a primary song came into her mind. I often go walking in meadows of clover, and I gather armfuls of blossoms of blue. I gather the blossoms the whole meadow over. Dear Mother, all flowers remind me of you. As she opened her eyes, she noticed one little flower growing between the cracks of the cement. She picked it up and put it into her pocket. Her troubles with the other children did not disappear, but she walked back into the school feeling that her parents were with her. Each of us, like my six-year-old daughter, have felt lost or alienated in a foreign land. Perhaps your foreign land was learning the language of algebra or chemistry. Maybe you thought you'd come to a foreign shore when you joined the Church, even if you joined in your native country. Put yourself in the place of a new convert. Words like calling, presiding bishopric, even general authority require a glossary entry. What about our missionaries who have understood and responded to the promptings of the Holy Spirit that the Church is true, but then have the challenge of learning both the gospel and a foreign language at the same time? I marvel to think of their courage. Our lives are filled with many instances of the frustration of learning a foreign tongue. Nevertheless, there is one language that is universal. But, dear mother, all flowers remind me of you, spoke to the heart of a young girl. A primary song and a wildflower were the familiar language of an answered prayer. After Jesus had been teaching for some time at the temple in Bountiful, he perceived the people might not have understood all the words he spoke. He asked them to go to their homes and ponder and pray with their families and prepare for him to come the next day. But when he cast his eyes round about again on the multitude 
and beheld they were in tears, and did look steadfastly upon him, as if they would ask him to tarry a little longer with them. He took their little children, one by one, and blessed them. And he spake unto the multitude, and said unto them, Behold your little ones. And as they looked, they saw angels descending out of heaven, as it were, in the midst of fire. And they came down and encircled those little ones about, and the angels did minister unto them. To encircle with the fire of our testimony is a language all of us must learn to speak and understand. The first lesson taught to every child in the world attending primary is, I am a child of God. Children as young, young as 18 months might be pointing to themselves acting out this finger play. Heavenly Father knows me and what I like to do. He knows my name and where I live. I know He loves me, too. When I was teaching sixth grade a number of years ago, a 14-year-old boy dressed in gang attire was marched into my classroom. He was two years older and four years larger than the other 30 students. Quickly, I discovered Brian did not read, had not attended school with any regularity, and had lived with a variety of guardians in a number of cities. Report card time was coming up, and I came to school on my day off to finish recording the children's work and mark the report card. As I entered the classroom to gather up the records, I could see Brian had the class in an upheaval. I suggested to my grateful co-teacher that I would take Brian with me with some first-grade primers filled with pictures. We headed to the library, talking a little football on the way. We settled ourselves at a table where I was marking report cards. I asked him if he'd ever had a report card. He shook his head and said, No. I asked him if he would like a report card. He looked directly at me, only if it said, I was a good boy. Well, I made out a special card for him, emphasizing his strengths. I wrote his full name on it and his ability to include everyone and make people laugh. I specifically mentioned his love of sports. It was not a traditional report card, but seemed to please him. Not too long after that, Brian disappeared from our school, and the last I heard of him, he was living in another state. I hoped he had my report card saying that he was a good boy in his pocket, wherever he was. Someday we will all be given final report cards. Maybe we will be graded on how well we have reported each other's goodness. Every child needs regular reports affirming you are known, you are valued, you have potential, you are good. I love the stories of pioneer children. We always hear about their parents walking to the Salt Lake Valley. But in the words of a primary song, whenever I think about pioneers, I think of brave women and men. I like to remember that children came too. I would like to have been a child then. Susan Madsen tells the story of Agnes Caldwell in the Willie Handcart Company. They were caught in heavy storms and suffered terrible hunger and cold. Relief wagons came to deliver food and blankets, but there were not enough wagons to carry all the sick people. Even after rescue, the majority of the people still had to trudge on many more miles to the safety of the valley. 
Little nine-year-old Agnes was too weary to walk any farther. The driver took notice of her determination to keep up with the wagon and asked if she would like a ride. She tells in her own words what happened next. At this, he reached over, taking my hand, clucking to his horses to make me run. With legs that could run no farther, on we went to what to me seemed miles. What went through my head at that time was that he was the meanest man that ever lived or that I had ever heard of. Just at what seemed the breaking point, he stopped and pulled me into the wagon. Taking a blanket, he wrapped me up, warm and comfortable. Here I had time to change my mind, as I surely did, knowing full well by doing this he saved me from freezing when taken into the wagon. The driver of that relief wagon made the little girl run as far and as fast as she could to push blood back into her frozen feet and legs. He saved her legs, possibly her life, by letting her help herself. Our children today have journeys as terrible and taxing as the westward migration. They are faced with every calamity along the trail. We need to build their backs to bear their burdens and legs for dancing under starry skies. Sometimes we must run to keep up with our children's faith. Another time in 3rd Nephi, when Christ was blessing the disciples, His countenance did smile upon them, and the light of His countenance did shine upon them. A smiling countenance says, You are good. Children are trying to be like Jesus. They want to be like someone who smiles. They want to be with someone who responds to them joyfully. President Hinckley has said, Children need sunlight. They need happiness. They need love and nurture. This should be the gospel of instruction to our children. Whatever your mother tongue, learn to teach and speak in the language of heartfelt prayers and joyful testimony so that angels, earthly and heavenly, can encircle and minister to us. We need gospel mentors who speak the language of praise and friendship. We need to give regular spiritual report cards that affirm our goodness in each other's eyes. It is a blessing to allow children to run as far as they can under their own power to build strength for their own testimonies, and we should smile upon them and wrap them in the blanket of our affection throughout the great journey in the universal language of love. I give thanks for the great blessing to behold our little ones. I like to remember that children come to, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Some time ago, I received an, an anonymous letter from a heartbroken mother expressing her suffering and pain for a son who had committed grievous transgressions, badly hurting innocent loved ones. Since her anonymous letter to me and feeling her despair, I've had a great desire to express my love to her and others in similar circumstances in an attempt to give some comfort and hope to those who are anonymously and privately carrying heavy burdens, often known only to them and a loving Father in Heaven. I know Sister Anonymous 
that what I say will only be a reminder, but still another testimony to what you already know. When the Prophet Joseph Smith, suffering what had to be one of his darkest moments while confined to the dungeon called Liberty Jail, cried out, O God, where art thou? The Lord comforted him with these words, Know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. How difficult it is and painfully foreign it may seem to find the good out of our personal tragedy and suffering. How inconsistent the words, for thy good, may seem. However, an understanding of Christ's plan of redemption helps put it all into perspective. In our pre-existent state, our Father in Heaven presented His plan for immortality, which Alma described as the plan of happiness. I believe we all understood that by coming to earth, we would be exposed to all of the experiences of earth life, including the not-so-pleasant trials of pain, suffering, hopelessness, sin, and death. There would be opposition and adversity. And if that is all we knew about the plan, I doubt if any of us would have embraced it, rejoicing. That's what I've always wanted—pain, suffering, hopelessness, sin, and death. But it all came into a focus, and it became acceptable, even desirable when an elder brother stepped forward and offered that he would go down and make it all right. Out of pain and suffering, he would bring peace. Out of hopelessness, he would bring hope. Out of transgression, he would bring repentance and forgiveness. And out of death, he would bring the resurrection of lives. And with that explanation and most generous offer, each and every one of us concluded, I can do that. That is a risk worth taking. And so we chose. The unfathomable extent of Christ's mercy and His Atonement are explained by Amulek in the 34th chapter of Alma in the Book of Mormon. Amulek explains that there must be a great and last sacrifice. And then he clarifies that this cannot be a sacrifice of beast or fowl similar to those already known to man. It had to be a sacrifice of a God, Jesus Christ, for this must be infinite and eternal. And so the sacrifice was made, and by faith we find ourselves traveling this journey we call mortality. As a result, our hearts are saddened with the unexplained loss of a child or the supposed untimely illness or disability of a loved one. Single parents struggle to provide financial security and the reassuring influences of the gospel in their home. And maybe most difficult of all is the pain experienced of helplessly watching the suffering of a loved one because of sin and transgression. There are few of us, if any, who don't walk the refiner's fire of adversity and despair, sometimes known to others, but for many quietly hidden and privately endured. Most of the heartache, pain, and suffering we would not choose today, but we did choose. 
We chose when we could see the complete plan. We chose when we had a clear vision of the Savior's rescue of us. And if our faith and understanding were as clear today as it was when we first made that choice, I believe we would choose again. Therefore, perhaps the challenge is to have the kind of faith during the hard times that we exercised when we first chose, the kind of faith that turns questioning and even anger into acknowledging the power, blessings, and hope that can come only from Him who is the source of all power, blessings, and hope, the kind of faith that brings the knowledge and assurances that all that we experience is part of the gospel plan, and that for the righteous all that appears wrong will eventually be made right, the peace and understanding to endure with dignity and clarity of purpose can be the sweet reward. This kind of faith can help us to see the good even when life's paths seem to be layered only with thorns, thistles, and craggy rocks. When Jesus and His disciples passed a man who was blind since his birth, his disciples queried, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I do not believe our Father in heaven causes the tragedies and heartbreak in our lives. But as the works of God were made manifest in the healing of a blind man, so also may we, the way we face our personal trials may manifest the works of God. From our sorrow we might seek out the sweetness and the good that is often associated with and peculiar to our challenge. We can seek out those memorable moments that are frequently hidden by the pain and agony. We can find peace in extending ourselves to others, using our own experiences to provide hope and comfort. And we can always remember with great solemnity and gratitude He who suffered most to make it all right for us. And by so doing, we can be strengthened to bear our burdens in peace. And then the works of God might be manifest. In speaking of Christ's Atonement, I like the dictionary's definition of infinite and eternal because I believe it explains exactly what God meant—infinite, having no boundaries or limits, and the definition of eternal being without beginning or, you, or end. Do you see, Sister Anonymous? That means the Atonement was for you in your suffering. It is personal as He is intimately acquainted with your trials and sorrows, for He has already suffered them. It means there can always be a new beginning for every one of us, even a son who has committed serious transgressions. It means as we move ahead through life's trials and tribulations, shackled with feelings of hopelessness, we focus not on where we have been but where we are going. We focus not on what has been, but what can be. Admittedly, most of us would rather learn the hard lessons of life in the secure comfort of a Sunday school class 
or the radiant warmth of a fireplace during a family home evening. But may I point out it was from the cold, dark corners of Liberty Jail that came some of the most beautiful, comforting scripture given to man, concluding with the words, All these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. Likewise, out of our adversity, we might seek our greatest triumphs, and the day may well come that from our challenges we will understand the familiar words, For thy good. From the scriptures, we learn that when the Savior went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pay the ultimate price for our transgressions and our suffering, He bled from every poor. I believe, Sister Anonymous, that in His excruciating pain He bled a drop of blood for you, He bled a drop for your Son, and He bled a drop for me. I believe in prayer. I believe in faith. I believe in repentance. I believe in the power of redemption. And yes, Sister Anonymous, I believe in you. And so does a loving Father in heaven. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.